This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. I was always taught, question everything, listen to the criticism, analyze it for yourself, take on board the things that you think are appropriate. If you think it's totally unfair, maybe talk to the person to understand where it's coming from and you might change your mind about whether it's fair or unfair. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, for these incredible conversations. This Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Lockheed Martin. I'm delighted to welcome Judith Batty onto the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast today. Judith previously served as an executive and senior attorney at ExxonMobil Corporation for over 28 years. And after that, she served as the interim chief executive officer at the Girl Scouts of America. We are in for a fascinating discussion today as we dive into Judith's, frankly, extraordinary career. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. So here on Smart Women's Smart Power, I'd love to know what got people into the field. What was there? What was that moment of inspiration earlier in your life that sort of drew you into the field of, of law and overall, I, I guess, corporate legal work? So I'm going to answer that in two different ways. So there was inspiration that brought me to the law, but there was a different inspiration that brought me into corporate. So let me start with the law. Growing up, I lived in a household where it was expected that I was going to get a graduate degree. And from the time I was five, I always thought I was going to be a doctor. I wanted to be a doctor. And I talked about being a doctor. And most of that came from a child's view of the lifestyle of a doctor, as opposed to the actual science and the actual being a doctor. Because I also loved politics, and I always said I was going to be a doctor who went into politics. And the politics comes from my father. When you argued with my father or had a disagreement with my father, my father would always say, okay, show me in a book. So I learned how to do research and have precedent from a very early age because you weren't going to win an argument with my father unless you could show him in a book that what you said was true. So I credit that with my father with that early, early inspiration and installation of learning. As a relatively new parent and about to have another yeah. one, I'm, I am absolutely adopting that tip. Yes, it was great. It was great. And then actually, it's really kind of interesting, but actually another another sort of pivot point for me in, in knowing I wanted to at least go into politics as a doctor was when I was 16. And it's actually part of my Girl Scout story. When I was 16, the National Council session, that's the governing body of Girl Scouts. It meets every three years. And, and traditionally, it had been all adult volunteers. The year I was 16, the National Council session, the executive leadership had decided they were going to try an experiment and invite girls. So they invited 100 girls from across the U.S. And I happened to be one of those 100 girls who was picked to be a delegate to the National Council session. And at that National Council session, I actually spoke. I got, had to figure out what I was going to say. I argued my point. You know, I sat down and I saw all the parliamentary procedure. Plus, I had to argue my case 
I was like, I like this. Fast forward, I'm in college, I'm pre-med. I'm in this organization called Black Science. And we had a trip to the New York City morgue. I was at NYU and we had a trip to the New York City morgue and the morgue museum where we got to see a lot of bodies that had been in the East River for a number of months. We got to see a lot of formaldehyde with different body parts in it. And we got to see an autopsy. And it was very soon after that, about a week after that, I got lost in a hospital and I just, I decided, I was like, oh, this is not, this is not my life. <laughs> and as I had always wanted to be a doctor who went into politics, I decided the better path was to be a lawyer <laughs> that went into politics. <laughs> and it was right about that time I, I changed my major and became pre-law. So that's how I got to law school. Now, my idea of a lawyer, though, back then was, you know, it was still, it was Perry Mason. It was all the, you know, TV shows, LA Law, all that stuff. Had no idea about corporate law at all. And I actually got to corporate law by accident. When I got out of law school, I went to the Justice Department. I wanted to be an antitrust lawyer. And my first job out of law school was actually in the antitrust division of justice. And then I went to a law firm doing antitrust work. And I got a call from a headhunter when I was at the firm for a corporate job, also doing antitrust counseling. I wasn't too happy at the firm, so I uh, took the interview with the headhunter and I actually got the job in about two weeks. It was record time. I was very surprised. But it was at a corporation and I had never thought about going in-house. And the job was attractive. It was doing something I wanted to do. And it got me out of where I was. So I took it. So you were just and sort of once, open to the universe and just exactly, let it happen. Exactly. And that's how I ended up at mobile. You know, I was six years out of school by then and had no idea what I was getting myself into. And I thought long and hard about going to mobile because my politics plays is important to me. And at that point in time, mobile had interest in South Africa and we were supposed to be boycotting South Africa and it was an oil company. And so I thought long and hard, but I ended up going. They followed the Sullivan principles and then soon pulled out. So that was a relief to me, actually. But that's how I got into corporate law. And once I, I was in the corporation and saw what they did, how they did it, and where they did it. It was actually the best thing that ever happened. I mean, it was a it was a very good company. I thought they were very ethical. I thought they did things well, very different than Exxon does things well too, but in a different way. At the merger, it became a little different. I always, I use the term and I always say this, Exxon is run by engineers and mobile was run by marketers. So it's just a different approach to things, right? Both were very well-run companies, both very successful companies, but very different approaches, very different approaches. You work at antitrust, corporate law for mobile, then ExxonMobil. You stayed there for almost three decades. I know. <laughs> Could you have imagined that? No, because as I said, I got that call from the headhunter. And I, when I took the job, I thought, okay, at that point, the headquarters was still in New York, but my job, the job they hired me for was in Virginia, which was the marketing headquarters. One of the big reasons I took the job is because I am a New Yorker. I'm from New York. And I thought I would get back to New York. As it turned out, mobile moved to Virginia. So I did not get back to New York. But no, when I took the job, I thought I was going to stay maybe two years, maybe three. 
But as I said, the one thing about working for a big company, which is really a great attribute, is you can change jobs without changing companies. So I was there 28 years, but in that 28 years, I had a number of different jobs and I moved around and I had a great career, I think. (laughs) Which part of your tenure there do you look back on and reflect on most fondly? So there are a few different parts of my career and a few different times. So I think the first sort of big pivot for me was... I had been at mobile at that point for maybe 18 months, maybe a little less. And the person who hired me changed jobs. So I got a new boss. He was tasked with looking at the assets of a company that was selling and to see whether mobile wanted to buy any of those assets. He brought me to the data room with him. That was the beginning of the first pivot in my career, the biggest pivot, actually. We ended up bidding on a refinery. I ended up working with him side by side, learned a lot from him and the other people on the team, but I also ended up being his second kind of. So I worked on every aspect of the deal. And when that deal was over, one, I loved doing the deal, but two, he looked at me and said, this antitrust counseling litigation management, you really are a deal lawyer. You're a born deal lawyer. And that's how I became a deal lawyer. And that was my first deal. I, you know, I didn't know what a deal lawyer was coming from Long Island and from two educators. I had no idea. So that was the first sort of pivot and the first sort of thing that I remember as being sort of really, really positive. The second was I actually got stationed in London for two years in mobile. And I loved my time in London. I loved the work. I loved living in London. So that was that was a great time for me. And it was um, an interesting time for me, too, just because I hadn't had the experience of living in another culture. And the English culture is what we are based on. But as my secretary would constantly tell me, this, the problem with Americans is that they are constantly trying to express themselves in a language they have not learned properly. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there are differences between the British and us. I didn't have a language to bridge totally, but I, but it was a different culture. So that, that was great. And then I loved my time in Japan. You know, I was general counsel. It was a whole lot later in my career. And I did have a language to learn, which I did. I spoke pretty good Japanese conversation by the time I left. Not anymore, but I did then. And then some of the deals I worked on were just gratifying, just because I thought they were very good deals for the company, but also very good deals for the country where I was working. It's so interesting. You are trained in American law and with ExxonMobil, but you're in these other countries working within these new legal frameworks and trying to find solutions that work for everybody. I can imagine it's like a three-dimensional chess game almost. Exactly. And add into that, I am a Black woman. Add into that a lot of... It's interesting, depending on the country you were in, in the Muslim countries I worked in, being a woman could sometimes be an issue. Dressing was always an issue. The color issue didn't wasn't as much of a factor in most countries I worked in. It was more a factor when I did deals in the U.S., frankly, than when I did deals overseas. Yeah. But in all of that, most of the time, I was the only woman in the room. Right. So that was always an issue. And I have to say, I did a projection sharing agreement in Algeria with my team, my team. I was the only woman. 
But I was actually really happy when I walked in the room. The Algerian team actually had two women. So I was, that was one deal where there were actually women on the other side. It was great. (laughs) Well, so that brings us, I think, to the decision you'd like to talk with us today about, which is your decision to have a more people-focused approach to your leadership at ExxonMobil and and, and specifically with respect to divestitures. So could you set the scene for us? You just mentioned that you were the only woman in the room in these times. How did you experience that? How, what, was, what were the challenges of that? So one of the things that I did a, a, a lot of is when we were selling a, a refinery in particular, let's talk refineries, that's, the, that's kind of the easiest. So it's an ongoing concern we're selling the refinery to another company that is going to also operate it. So a lot of times they're taking our people, but they might not be taking all of our people. So that's one. Two, our people have been with us. A lot of times refineries have been in the company a, a number of years and they're usually located in smaller towns. So sometimes the refinery has been like the employer in the town for a number of years. So you have not only the current personnel, but they're fathers and grandfathers have also worked at that refinery. And now it was changing flags, right? It was going to be a different company. Mm -hmm. You had people who were invested in your company now being sold. They didn't have any say in it to another company. And so you want to respect them and you want to make the transition as smooth as possible. And that's what I always focused on. So I was always looking for ways to make sure that when the our people went to the new company. They didn't lose any seniority. Mm -hmm. They didn't get demoted. They were treated equally when it came to promotions and bonuses and things as the people who were already, who were in the the new company and treated at the same level so that, you know, they didn't get a smaller bonus just because they hadn't been there for three years or whatever the term is. You wanted to look at people who were close to retirement, You wanted to see first if you could bridge it so that they could take advantage of the retirement that they were working towards. And then if you couldn't bridge it, you wanted to make sure that they went into a retirement system that at least was comparable to what they were giving up, right? All those kinds of decisions, I always paid a lot of attention to and argued for. Did you find pushback with your colleagues? Not so much with my colleagues, unless it was a trade-off on some other part of the deal. You know, we'll give you this if they give you that. Not so much with my colleagues, but depending on the company they were going, if they were going into a bigger, a big company like a Shell or a BP or something, they had comparable programs and it usually wasn't that big a deal. But sometimes people were being bought by new, new startups, private equity, and those things cost money. Those people perks cost money. And so sometimes you get pushback from the buyer trying to cut their costs. So yes, I would strongly argue for those things and look for those things. For the people who weren't moving on, they were going to leave mobile or ExxonMobil and also not go to the new company. Then you wanted to make sure they were, they were supported so that they would get decent severance as well as you know, support in helping them find another position and training if they need it. That was a lot of my focus Besides all the other stuff on the deal, the liability issues and everything else. <laughs> Those sorts of things, you know, divesting a refinery, like I can imagine, I, well, I actually now I can't imagine the complexity of, of having to, to organize all of the different components of, of that sort of deal. You were the only woman in the room. 
But then you moved over, you know, after you left ExxonMobil, you became the interim CEO of Girl Scouts USA. So how did you make that switch? It was a big switch. Yeah. And it wasn't right away. I retired from ExxonMobil in 2015. But in 2014, I actually had gone on the board of Girl Scouts of the USA. Okay. So I was on the board of GSUSA and it was towards the end of my second term on the board. So three-year term. So it was towards the end of my sixth year on the board. I had done some things working with staff around our cookie program. I had done a lot of work around sort of COVID because it was in the beginning of COVID and helping staff and looking at COVID and how our, how we were reacting to it. And the CEO that we had decided it was time for her to do something different. We didn't have a lot of notice. It was unexpected. So as a board, we decided we would take a little time, put in an interim, and then look for a new CEO. And then they looked at me and said, will you be interim? (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, what? Uh, Well, uh." so anyway, after a lot of soul searching and hemming and hawing, I said yes. And that's how I became interim. I I had been retired actually from ExxonMobil for about five years. It was very different. For one thing, it was all girls in the room. (laughs) On the board, there were probably maybe five or six men at any given point in time. But when I became CEO and I had my senior staff, there was one male in senior staff. And he retired not too long after I got there. I convinced him to stay a little bit longer, but he retired uh, not too long after I got there. So it was women in the room making all decisions. So it was, it was very different from that standpoint. But it was also eye-opening because we're not monolithic. We don't all think alike. And so you still had the same types of issues. They were handled a little bit differently. But you still had those issues. Those issues mean like interpersonal issues or differences of views? Difference of opinion, difference of views, different approaches. One of the things I did do at Girl Scouts, which I put Girl Scouts on the path, is it was right around the time, right around the time I became CEO was also George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all the social unrest around race. If you look at the statistics of Girl Scouts, at least when I looked at them, one of the patterns I saw was that Girl Scouts did not have an issue recruiting black and brown girls, but they did have an issue retaining black and brown girls. And when I looked at my executive team, there were no black or brown girls. One of the things that I was one of my personal goals while I was CEO was to get us on that path of trying to figure out what the issues were in retention, what the issues were in hiring, in promoting. We got a grant from the Ford Foundation. Nice. Thank you, Ford Foundation. Nice, healthy grant. I was able to hire to find a firm that was based in strategy as opposed to HR, but based in strategy and DEI and to do a DEI audit because You needed a strategic path forward, a comprehensive path forward that looked at not only hiring, but programming, advertising, sort of everything, soup to nuts. And this firm did that. Because a lot of them, at least my perception of diversity, equity, and inclusion 
initiatives, people do take them as HR things. But HR is important. But this isn't something that you just tick a box or have exactly. like a form to fill exactly. out or like a benefit to provide. It's exactly it's culture. Or, it's inclusive. Or a badge. There were a group of people who just wanted me to do a Girl Scout badge for the girls. And it's like, we have issues with our structure and our programming. A badge for the girls is not going to do it. <laughs> Having once been a Girl Scout, I agree. <laughs> right. Like that's, right. That's not, exactly. Not the, way to, not the way to cut it, that one. <laughs> it was so in the room, you still had your differences. You still had different approaches. But I think as a group of women, we tried to be more cordial. We tried to be more supportive. Didn't always work, but I think people were, their hearts were in the right place. That kind of was the difference. I mean, the men look more at, when I was at ExxonMobil at least, the men are more, I would say, deal for the moment focused, get this deal done. They looked at the long run, sort of, but the, but the immediate deal was, was the focus. I think women look more long-term right? It's not only the immediate, but how does this affect the long-term? And they keep the long-term in mind. That is so interesting that you say that. It's a recurring theme that we're hearing on this podcast. Women tend to have more strategic approaches to problems and more holistic views on how to solve them. And bigger picture. Bigger picture. Yeah. Our male counterparts tend to be a little bit more in military defense dork land, we'd call it tactically focused, you know, the sort of more immediate thing. So it's very interesting that you're raising that. I think they compartmentalize a lot different than women do, the men. Yeah. They can compartmentalize, okay, but this deal is just this deal. And women are like, yeah, but if we do it this way, then five years from now, this <laughs> Right. So the interconnections yeah. between different yes. issues. Yes. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. To wrap up our conversation to push on this thread a little bit more, do you feel that being a woman impacted the way you approach these decisions at both ExxonMobil and at the Girl Scouts of America? If so, why? And if not, why not? I do. I think it impacts the way you think about things. I think it impacts just your whole approach. And for me, it's not only being a woman, but it's also being Black. So one of the things that I've had to wrestle with, especially when I get sort of comments that I don't think are fair or, or if I'm in a room and people are looking at me in an interesting way, I always have to sit back and say, okay, is it because I'm Black? Is it because of what I just said? Is it because I'm a woman? Is it a combination of that? But yes, I do think I was raised in a household where you know, I was taught you are black, so some things are going to happen different. Don't lose your confidence. Just keep going. But it's going to happen. So don't be surprised by it either, which I'm grateful for, because sometimes when that happens, especially with black folks, they lose their confidence and then they lose their way. I was always taught question everything, listen to the criticism, analyze it for yourself, take on board the things that you think are appropriate if you think it's totally unfair, maybe talk to the person to understand where it's coming from and you might change your mind about whether it's fair or unfair. But yeah, I do think it affects everything, especially when I was in Japan. Talk about being a woman in charge. That's very rare commodity in Japan. Let me tell you, even today. And I had a team full of men and I was always dealing with men. And sometimes they 
kind of looked at me like, what's she doing here? And sometimes they were very just pragmatic and said, she's here. (laughs) But, you know, I don't know that they ever felt comfortable either way. And that's such an important observation that those microaggressions, macroaggressions, straight up aggressions, Mm -hmm. those also have longer term impacts. The need to pay attention to how we communicate and it's just so important because we don't want people to lose their way. And often it's at least my impression that some of these people who make people feel uncomfortable have no idea that they're doing so. One of the things that I did do in my management style is when I had people who reported to me and they were made uncomfortable because of one of these issues, women, race, whatever, by another manager, a lot of times I would call the manager separate later and say, did you know that? And they're like, oh my God, they thought what? And and it's, you're right. I mean, you know, you're in your head and you're thinking, everybody's thinking the same way you are. And, and they're not. Sometimes they don't realize what they said. Sometimes they're like, I didn't say that. You know? And it's like, well, yeah, you did. I was there, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yes, it's really important to maybe not in the moment, but at some point to talk about those things because You can go on with all these assumptions, which are just that. They're assumptions. And if they are brought into the light, things would be a lot clearer, easier to deal with next time. And um, And we get the best out of our people. Exactly. You don't frighten people because then people in a couple of situations, the people who are working for me didn't want to deal with this manager or that manager. And once the air was cleared, it was like, oh, okay. I'll deal with him. I'll, I'll work with him. You can learn a lot from everybody. So I'm all for clearing the air. <laughs> well, thank you so much for spending your time with us, Judith. This has been such a terrific and rich conversation. So thank you for your leadership in all of these different capacities and for sharing these insights. Thank you. I appreciate the time. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes One. Thanks for listening and join us next time. This Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Lockheed Martin.